Well, good weekend, everybody. We are in the third message of our series called Courage. If you've missed any of the other messages, you can go online and you can check those out. As I was getting ready for the message this weekend, I came across an article that caught my attention. The title was, Why Failure is Good for You. I thought, well, I got to find out why it's good for me because I've had my share of it. How about you? And the author went on to say that in our country, we do not reward failure. We reward success. With the exception being this. If your failures become stepping stones to success, then it's okay. John Maxwell, who's a leadership guru, wrote a book called Failing Forward. How to turn mistakes in your life into stepping stones for success. I stood back from reading that article and thinking about Maxwell's book and I thought, you know, I agree with this idea. I can vouch for it in my own life. There's been certain things I've failed at that I've learned from that has made me better, more successful. How about you? But then the question came to my mind. And the question is this. What do you do when you fail forward into success only to fall backwards into failure. Or put it another way, what do you do when your God-given success actually becomes a spiritual liability in your life? A lot to think about. How do you muster the courage to remain successful in God's eyes, not fall backwards into failure again? There's an episode in the Old Testament that answers the question for us. We're going to look at it together. Actually, we're going to look at the story from several angles. We're going to start in the book of Joshua, which is the sixth uh, book in your Bible. So you want to turn open there. If you're joining us online, if you will do that as well. To any global partners who are joining us online, it's so good to have you with us. Pray God would bless you. Maybe you have it on an app, so turn the app open. When you first open up the book of Joshua in those early chapters, you discover that Moses has died. And with him, a whole generation of rebels who were just a real pain in the neck in the wilderness. Always arguing with Moses, always arguing with God. And that's why God let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years till that generation died off. It was not about to let them into the promised land. If there's ever a story of failure, you could say it was the generation that died off in the wilderness. God gave them every opportunity for success, but they kept failing backwards, falling backwards into failure. But now God looks at Joshua, and in essence, he says to them, you're the new Moses. You're going to lead the people. Those early chapters of Joshua, God keeps saying to him, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. You can do this. Joshua's about 80 years old now, so you can imagine. He says to him, I want you to obey everything I have to say to you. Do not deviate from the truth. Don't get discouraged. Trust me and I'll be with you like I was with 
Moses saying God indeed was with Joshua. And God said, go. Take the land. Fight against the fortified cities, the armies that are bigger than yours, and I will give you the victory. But for Joshua, the people could get to the promised land. They had a bigger problem. The Jordan River was at flood stage. It was uncrossable and impassable. It was a Red Sea moment for Joshua and the people. But God doesn't tell Joshua to raise his staff up. God says to Joshua, tell the priest to put the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence among his people, hoist it on your shoulders, carry it by those poles, and step into the flooded Jordan River. And as those priests did that in obedience, the moment their feet touched the river, it says that quite a ways away, the river stopped flowing and stood right up like a wall of water. And all of the people walked across the dry riverbed to the other side. It was quite a moment. Talk about success. And then one city after another just fell in front of them. They had an easy time of conquest. Oh, there were some moments, there were some hiccups along the way, like at AI. But they learned quickly from their failures and moved into success. A lot different than the story of the wilderness. Here's God's power. Here's God being successful. Here's the people enjoying the fruit of all of that. Until you get to the seventh book in the Old Testament, the book of Judges. You come to this scene that just is mind-boggling. How does Israel end up this way? Turn, if you will, to Judges chapter 2, and let me read to you what it says there. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. It says, Joshua, a son, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Come down to verse 10. It says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every tribe, every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. The people were in great distress. What happened? What happened to Israel that God stopped fighting for them and God started fighting against them? What happened to God's people that they compromised their faith and worship and began to serve idols and forgot about him, disobeyed him? More importantly, is what happened to them something that could happen to you, to me, to our family, to our kids, to our grandkids, to our church? When I look at what happens to Israel in this passage, I realize that what happened there in the ancient times is happening in the modern times. 
And while there are many different kinds of sins that could beset a Christian, that we can get ourselves tangled into, that our churches can get tangled into, there seems to be one predominant sin, at least in this story, that's a leading cause for a lot of the troubles that Christians find themselves in. It's a leading cause to marital, marital conflicts among believer, amongst believers. It's a leading cause of stress and anxiety and competition and jealousy and anger that believers sometimes experience in their families, in their personal lives, or at work, or even in the church. It's oftentimes the cause or what's behind immorality and injustice and pride and power plays and bad decisions, ethically speaking. I think it's why a lot of churches are in decline in their attendance and their giving and their volunteerism and why so many churches just are so apathetic these days. It's something you ought to be concerned about, especially those of you who are parents. Because if you're struggling with it, your children, your grandchildren are going to struggle with it far more. To a point that someday it could be said in your family that there will be a generation who does not know God. And it all starts from this one issue. So what's the issue? Well, I need you to turn back now to the fifth book of the Old Testament to discover that. That's the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in chapter 8. I want to read a long portion of it because obviously it's the word of God. It needs to be read. There's power in his word. And it is so full of insight for Christians living in this country, America, today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'll start reading at verse 6. So obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in valleys and hills. So this is prior to them ever going into the promised land. Which if you're in the wilderness or been a slave in Egypt, boy, that sounds like a great place. Fresh, gushing water, wells and springs. Verse 8. It's a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. Anybody had lunch yet? Verse 9, it is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone, copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. But that is the time to be careful, he says. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord, which means the temptation is in times of plenty and prosperity, we forget God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I'm giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, he could be talking to us, couldn't he? And when your flocks and herds have become very large, your silver and gold have multiplied along with your 403B, wait a minute, along with everything else, be careful, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from, your, from slavery in the land of Egypt. 
Do not forget that he led you through the great terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. In other words, God took you through the desert to teach you you're nothing without him and to provide for you so that when you come into the time of plenty, you'll realize that God is a sole provider. Verse 17, he said, he did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Look what I have built. Look what I have done. Verse 18, remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. But I assure you this, if you, for, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed just as the Lord has destroyed other nations in your, past, in your path. You also will be destroyed if you refuse to obey the Lord your God. Now do you understand Judges chapter 2? What happened to Israel that they fell backwards so far into failure? The answer is really simple. You can summarize this whole thing by saying the problem is they forgot to remember that God was the source of their success. I'll put a little positive spin on it and put it this way. Don't forget to remember that God is the source of your success. God says to them twice, be careful, be careful. Be careful when everything starts going right, when you start to make a profit, when you start to build your homes, when everything is coming your way, be careful, be careful. Don't think that somehow you have achieved it. Don't let pride slip in. Remember me. And it is not our nature to remember God when we experience prosperity. Because God allows it to come through our hands and through our abilities and through our talents and through other means, we have a tendency to think, look what I did. And God says, when you do that, you are in dangerous territory. And not only am I supposed to remember this, I'm supposed to, as a parent, as a grandparent, I'm supposed to make sure that my children and my grandchildren and all of those who are around me also remember this. And I think that's the problem that Christians, especially in our country, face these days. Because we live in a prosperous nation. We do. We are prosperous people. Next time you feel sorry for yourself, don't think you have very much. Let me take you to Nepal or to India or to Bangladesh. Let me take you to Aqaba and Jordan, to those refugees. And you'll realize how filthy rich we really are. Most of us. When you're successful, when you have a lot, don't forget to remember that God is the source and the resource. And I think prosperity is the leading contributor to the struggles that Christians have, the struggles that churches have. I came across an article by Philip Yancey, prolific writer, although I haven't seen him write a lot lately. And in an article, he muses over a trend that the late French sociologist Jacques Ellul noticed when Christianity or the gospel permeates a society. Jacques Ellul says that when, when Christianity or the gospel seems to permeate a, a culture or a society, it ends up producing values that contradict the message of the gospel. 
Nancy said, I wanted to test his theory out. So he said, whenever I travel overseas, and Nancy travels quite a bit, he said, I would ask foreigners to give me a couple of words to describe America. Now, why America? Because America is perceived by the rest of the world as being a Christian nation. We certainly have the most Christians, probably, of any nation on earth. 70% of Americans say they are Christians. Of course, that's up for debate. What does Christian mean? But he would ask that question. He said, more times than not, I would get one of three answers. People would say to me, wealth, that's how they would describe America. And indeed, we're 4% of the world's population, but we have a quarter of the wealth, and we are certainly the leaders in terms of wealth and materialism. Military power. And the third thing, which I thought was interesting, and he put it under this category, they describe us as being decadent. Now, here's why. How do people who live in other countries view us? What is their image of us? It comes from Hollywood. And Hollywood does not present the most moral, upstanding figures. In fact, we are the exporters of pornography all around the world. So that's their view. That's why people living in Muslim nations, and if they're at all serious about their faith, hear what Christianity is supposed to be about, but then look at Americans and see what we live and what we produce, and to them it's so hypocritical. How can Christianity be true? Nancy cites a pastor who's died and gone home to be with the Lord. His name is Gordon Cosby. He founded a church in Washington, D.C. He's one of the very first Christian activists. And Gordon Cosby noticed this. He said, church history proves, now listen carefully, church history proves that high commitment Christian communities like ours begin with a strong sense of devotion which expresses itself in a life of discipline. Groups organized around devotion and discipline tend to produce abundance, but ultimately that very success breaks down discipline and leads to decadence. Think about the Reformation. Why was there a Reformation in 1560? There was a Reformation because the church went from poverty, went from suffering, went from spreading to becoming politicized, powerful, rich, and then immoral, unjust, and corrupt. The Reformers said, listen, we have to get back to faith only in Christ only and the word of God only and led this great movement of which we are the sons and daughters of it. But if you study the post-Reformation period, you begin to realize that the, the movement that the Reformation created itself went through a cycle then of success and prosperity and power and then decline and decadence. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said this, he said, I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of religion to continue long. For religions must, religions must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all its branches. Folks, everything I'm saying to you right now should be extremely revealing and insightful if you haven't already figured out as to what's happening in America. Our blessings have become a curse. Why? Because we have forgotten to remember the source of our blessings. 
And when you forget to remember the source of your blessings, suddenly your blessings become your God. They become your idol. You serve your blessings. I mean, how many marriages today, the basic problem is finances? Not always, but generally speaking. How many families are under tremendous stress and dysfunction because of money and finances and trying to have the best house and the best car and the best toys and the best places and the best clothes and trying to compete and keep up with each other and the best schools and the best clubs and on the list goes. How much anger and anxiety and stress is caused by money? How much immorality is caused by money? Think about the porn industry for just a moment. Pornography is a huge problem. It's not talked about very much. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem with Christians today. Do you realize that pornography exists because there's a profit to be made in it? Take the profit away and it would begin to diminish. Prosperity could be a good thing, but it could be a very dangerous thing. So the question I have there for myself and for you is, is your success, is your prosperity moving you towards God or moving you away from God? It's so, okay, you've proved your point. What do we have to do? How, how can I avoid letting this happen to me, my family, to our church? I mean, you understand when you're in successful time, prosperous times, people stop going to church. So many other things you can do. The more confident you feel about yourself, the more you feel like you're able to take care of all your needs. You don't feel a need to go to church. You don't feel a need to attend and to worship. You have so much available. and There's so many other things to invest in and to buy and to have. That's where your money goes. Pay for people to serve in the church. I don't have time for that. I'm too stressed, too busy trying to keep up with life to be involved and to serve. And the church begins to decline or becomes corrupted by its success and its prosperity. How do we get out of it? How do we avoid it? How do we stop it? Here's the profound answer. You ready? You got to write this down. It's huge, huge, okay? It's a big answer. You ready? What we need to avoid that happening is a pile of rocks in our life. Ta-da! So you mean a pile of rocks in our life. If Israel had observed the pile of rocks that God had given to them, what happened in Judges 2 would never have happened. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look at Joshua chapter 4 with me. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Joshua 4, verse 1. It says, when all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, now choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take 12 stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at a place where you will camp tonight. Verse 6, we will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Verse 7, then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. Come down to verse 21. Then Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? Now, if if he expects in the future they're going to ask, that means you're going to come back and visit these stones. And you are to say, this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up until we all crossed over. He did this so all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. 
These stones were not supposed to just be a memorial that would eventually gather dust and dirt until it was finally covered over and nobody saw it anymore. They were to be a reference place. They were to be a place that they were to come back frequently, individually, as families, as tribes, and remember God as their source of power and strength and salvation. In particular, I want to suggest to you that believers then and believers today, that there are three things we must remember. Three things. That's all. First, we need to remember every day that God is God and I am not. That God is supreme. That God is all-powerful over creation. That God is the God of redemption. Secondly, we need to remember to recite the story of God. Now, for the Israelites, that meant reciting how he got them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness to the promised land. For you and me, it means to recite the story of Calvary. It's to recite the story of the cross. How Jesus went to the cross and took my place and died for me so that he would become me and I would become like him to his father. It's a place I'm totally and absolutely forgiven. Where I am justified by God's grace. Where I receive the Holy Spirit. Where I have a promise of a future and a mission to live through in this life. And thirdly, I need to remember to not only recite, but also to renew then what? My, my commitment to the Lord. Renew myself to the mission and purpose of God for my life. You know that Israel didn't conquer the entire the promised land? Why? Because they got fat and lazy. They got satisfied where they were. They didn't want to push any further. We got enough. We're happy. You know, that's where a lot of churches are today. They've got enough. They're happy. They're content. It's full. They can pay the bills. Everything's going okay. They're a happy community. And they stop and they forget that Jesus said, go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Make sure you teach them everything that I've taught you. It's like an army. You put an army in the desert, but don't give an enemy to fight and they'll fight with each other. Put an enemy in front of them and they will die for each other to defeat that enemy. Once we stop being in motion, it's when we start complaining and bickering and arguing and, you know, the, all the stuff that we end up doing. We need to remember God. We need to remember to recite what he's done for us. And we need to remember every day to renew ourselves to his purpose and his commitment, individually, as families, and as a community of churches. But how do we do that? We need a mechanism for that. And the mechanism is the rocks. We need rocks in our life. Now, I'm going to impress all of you with my strength. Watch this. All right? I've been working out. You need a rock in your, in your life. You need several of them. And I'm going to suggest just a few of you. One rock you definitely need in your life that you need to come to every day is the Word of God. It's not enough just to have it in your family or have it on your table or have it on your phone as an app. You need to actually open it up, turn it on. You need to be in the Word of God every day because that's where you're reminded of who God is. That's where you're reminded of His great story of salvation. That's where you're reminded of your purpose. Every day I go to the rock, call His Word, His Word. You need another rock in your life, and that rock is that place where you attend and worship with other believers, like this place. You know, there's something that you will experience 
in Christ that you will not experience anywhere else, not even on the most beautiful lake alone by yourself with your Bible open, worshiping God. You won't experience there what you can experience when you're with a body of believers together. God wants an assembly of his people together. Read the book of Revelation. We'll all be together. Read the book of Acts. They would all come together. In the Old Testament, they would all come together at prescribed times. You know, the average Christian only goes to church maybe two times a month at the most. See, when you're prosperous, there's so many other places to go and things you can do. But the Bible says, forsake not the assembling yourselves together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Make sure you're with each other, because this is where, as a community, you remember that God is bigger than me. It's where I draw strength as I hear people tell their stories, where I hear the word of God preached, where I offer my worship up to God. Another rock that we need in our lives is the rock of our finances. What I mean by that is the practice of giving generously to God. Does God want us to give because he needs money? No, he owns everything. God wants us to give to remind us that what we have was given to us by him in the first place. It all belongs to him. Even to people who are unbelievers, it still belongs to him. They're just totally misusing it. But as a believer, you know who it belongs to. You know it belongs to God. When you get back that portion, it's like you saying, God, I acknowledge you as a provider. The hardest time to get back a, a portion is when you don't have a lot. But that's when God says, are you going to trust me? And it's hard to get when you have a lot because the question is, am I going to be generous with it? When there's so many other places I could put it. And I could go on. I could grab another rock and say prayer. I mean, how, what, where do you go with that? Prayer is huge. Prayer is talking back to God after hearing God speak to us through his word. I could talk about service as another rock, showing up and being involved and serving in the work of Christ through his church here, near, and far. And we could add many, many more things to this. The question is, do you have those rocks in your life and are you regularly visiting those rocks? If those of you are parents especially, are you taking your kids with you to those rocks? Because my perception is a lot of times we grew up with this, we understand it, and as parents we do it, but we don't bring our kids with us. What do you think is going to happen to your kids when they're your age? If you didn't bring them, if you didn't say we're going, whether you like it or not, whether it feels good or not, if you don't instill that into their hearts, into their lives, there will come a day when they won't go there anymore. And there'll come a generation in your family that will say, I don't know what those rocks are for. I don't know what they mean. That's what the 75th anniversary is all about. Our 75th anniversary is all about remembering that Jesus is the Lord of this church. Remembering all that he has done in and through and for Wooddale Church. It's a time for us to remember and recite all that he said, and all that he's done, and all that he's accomplished in so many, many ways in so many five years. And it's a time for us to remember and recite and renew that we're going to continue forward for the next 75 years. I want you to imagine seeing with me 75 years from now. I want you to imagine that there's a, a father and a son, and they walk by this building. The son says to his dad, Dad, what is a Wooddale church? What's that cross on the top of that really tall steeple? What does that mean? Well, his dad know? 
Or will his dad say, I don't know. 75 years from now, what that dad says to his son depends on you and me here and now. It depends on us refusing to forget and choosing to remember our great God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for loving us. We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us. We thank you so much for being who you are, our great God, the supreme being. Heavenly Father, we want to continually remember you. We want to continually rehearse that story, recite that story of the cross to ourselves. We want to continually renew ourselves to the the mission that you have called us to. And so, Lord, I pray if we have scattered the rocks in our life, if we have forgotten, Lord, to make this a regular practice in our life, Lord, that you'd forgive us and that you would call us as individuals and as families and a church to re-engage you. Father, you've been faithful to us. Help us now to be faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.